you guys would uh, stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. And this is the uh, Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're we're kind of more familiar with the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew. There's slight deviations in wording uh, because Jesus actually taught it more than one time. And so this is Luke 11. It says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up or get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I, t- I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Uh, Pray with me. Father, we are requesting that You give us Your Holy Spirit. That is at the root, at the heart of all prayer. That You would bring Your Spirit into our situation that you would allow us to hear your word and that your spirit would write it upon our hearts, would incline us to walk in your ways. So, Lord, I ask that you would accompany me in my weakness, anoint your word, allow it to bear fruit in the hearts of the people here and in my own heart. We ask for your spirit. Bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we... um, talk about Luke 11 and the prayer, I I thought it would be good to kind of give what's going on in the first 10 chapters of Luke. What has Jesus done in the first 10 chapters of Luke thus far? What are the amazing feats that he's accomplished? And so my, my attempt before diving into the Lord's Prayer is to show you a little bit of a glimpse of what the disciples, the 12, who've been following them around for a while now, have borne, they've, they've witnessed, they've seen Jesus do amazing feats and yet, in Luke 11, they see him pray and they ask him to teach them to pray. So, so come with me, I guess, uh, as the old hymn says, right? We're going to turn our eyes upon Jesus and we're going to look at the first 10 chapters of Luke. Jesus casts out an unclean demon from a man. He heals the mother-in-law of Peter from fever. In that very village, he then heals many others who come to him with sickness, and he casts out many unclean spirits and people who were possessed uh, demonically. He preached with authority in the synagogues of Judea. He vanquished the diseased skin and made it new upon the man who was full of leprosy. He bade a man to get up and walk who was before, was, who was before paralyzed, and he did it on behalf of the faith of the man's friends who lowered him down through the roof. He stretched out a man's withered hand with a restorative command on the Sabbath day. He healed crowds from Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon from diseases and the power of various demonic possessions and unclean spirits. He preached his mighty sermon on the mount and demonstrated authority over even Moses and the law. He healed the centurion's servant while miles away from where the sick lad lay. He raised the widow's son from the dead by the power of his voice. Jesus forgives the sins of a woman who likely was a prostitute as she lay at his feet weeping and wiping off his feet with her hair, and he and don't don't miss this. He forgave 
her sins. Jesus rebuked the winds in the rushing waves and they immediately settled into a state of peace and rest. Jesus cast out many demons who went by the name of Legion and were in one man. He sent them into pigs and they tumbled over a cliff to their death. Jesus healed a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 long years. And it said that none of the physicians in the land could help her. And she merely touched the corner of his clothes and she was immediately healed. Jesus raises the daughter of of Jairus from the dead who died because Jesus was too slow to get to her while she was laying sick to the point of death. Um, Our Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed over 5,000 people following him around. Our Jesus prophesied his death and his resurrection twice within the first 10 chapters of Luke. In Luke 9, our Jesus sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem, knowing that he's about to die. Uh, He transfigured, our Jesus transfigures into a glorious state. The appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Our Jesus tosses out of a child a demon who caused him years of convulsions and meant him pain and destruction. And yet, in response to all of these things that the disciples witnessed, they never once recordedly in the Gospels asked him, teach us to cast out demons. Teach us to resurrect the dead. Teach us to multiply bread. Teach us to teach with authority and to deliver great messages. But yet, in Luke 11, 1, they witness Jesus praying in just, a, it just says a certain place. It's just this random account. He's just praying in a certain place and they witness him praying and their immediate reaction is, and it, it's in, it's a, it's a command almost. They're almost, they're urgently commanding Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And in verse one, prayers used three times and that's, that's, that's what we're focusing on today. We're focusing on Jesus' prayer that he taught his disciples. And so in Luke 11, um, 1 through 13, we're going to see a model of prayer. Jesus is going to give uh, threads, thematic threads, that's what I'm calling them, thematic threads that we're supposed to weave in our daily and nightly prayers as we come before Father. So he's giving us a model that we can base our prayers off of. The second thing that this prayer is serving to do is it's a, a prayer that marks you off. Why, why did Jesus or, or why did the disciples say, teach us to pray as John's disciples taught him to pray? It was, uh, it was tradition that rabbis in first century Judaism, they would teach their disciples a prayer that distinguished them as specifically that rabbi's disciple. And so the disciples are asking Jesus, teach us this prayer that marks us off as specifically following you. And so we've got a model for prayer. We've got a marker. This sets us apart as Jesus' disciples. And then the final thing that we'll look at in the final two stories of Luke 11, 1 through 13, is we'll see the motivations that we should have when we come to our Father in prayer. And so look with me in verse 1. Our first point is this, and there's uh, five subpoints to this first point, sorry. Uh, no subpoints for the other points. Uh, the first point is this Jesus teaches us how to pray as a means of supplying us a model to base our daily and nightly prayers on, and as a means of marking us off as his disciples. And this comes to us from verses 1 through 4. So in verse 1, he says, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. I already mentioned that the, the, you know, the rabbi tradition of the rabbis teaching their disciples, marking them off. So that's what's in, in view here when the disciples are asking them. Uh, but also, we find this verse uh, in Matthew, the Lord's Prayer, in the middle of the Sermon of the Mount. And then we find it in Luke, just in some random place where Jesus is, is praying. And so it's likely that Jesus actually taught this prayer multiple occasions. And there's a little bit of variation in the wording in both places. It's, it, I think that's for us, Remedy Church, to hear that we don't pray it necessarily. We don't have to pray it necessarily word for word. But it's important. It is something that marks us off. It's our prayer. It's multiple. It's written in multiple places. In both Matthew and Luke, when they're writing, they're not writing to the disciples of Jesus 
right then and there. They're writing after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, after his ascension. They're writing to established churches and saying, not only is this prayer for the 12 to be marked off as Jesus' specific disciples, but this prayer is for the churches of Christ to be marked off as Jesus' specific disciples. And so, Remedy Church, this is your prayer. This is your model. This is your marker. And so, we're going to look at um, some of the thematic threads. That's what I'm calling them. And so 1A, it says this, and this is found in verse 2. Father, hallowed be your name. In prayer, we are to dwell deeply upon the great mystery that connects God's fatherhood with his holiness, namely Christ and him crucified. In, in our text, in, in the Greek, the very first word of the Lord's Prayer, both in Matthew and Luke, is Father. The very first word of the prayer that he teaches us to mark our lives by is to come to God and say, Father. The very next word in the Greek is the verb for holiness. It's, Father, your name must be holy. Father, sanctify your name. Or, Father, hallowed be your name. And so, one of the things that I think, it's quick, we can go right over it and just get into, well, what does it mean that God's name be hallowed? But, Don't miss that the space in between God's fatherhood and his holiness. What allows us, what gives us the audacity, the confidence, the boldness to come to God as father, but also to declare to him, make your name holy. Or another way of saying that is what connects Luke 15, you know, the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. What connects Luke 15 with 2 Samuel 6? So the prodigal son, right? We have this son who... After essentially denying his father, taking his inheritance and squandering it, he's literally eating pig slop, which is a you know, big no-no, right? It's not kosher at all, and it's obviously probably not very good. And so he's eating pig slop, and he says, if I just go back and serve in my father's house, I would be fed better than this. And as he returns, he's making his way to essentially put himself into servitude under his father's house. And it, it says that the father saw him from a great distance, and he picks up his robes, right? So that he can sprint. And, and we don't see this, but that's a great dishonor for an old man to pick up his robes and just sprint to run in, in public. It's a dishonor. And so he doesn't care about what people think about him. He sprints to his son. And as soon as he meets him, he wraps his arms around him and he kisses his neck. And he says, you know, and then there's the party and he welcomes him back and says, my, my son has been restored. So what, what connects that heart of God, the fatherness of our God, to Second Samuel 6, which is a whole nother side. You've got this poor guy, Uzzah. He's a priest, and he's walking behind a cart, and the, the Ark of the Covenant is on the cart, and, it, and there's already reasons that he shouldn't be doing that. But it hits a little you know, bump, and the Ark starts to slip off, and Uzzah in his mind is probably thinking, I've got to protect the holiness of God. I've got to stop it from touching the ground and becoming unclean. And he reaches out and he touches the Ark to steady it. And it says in verse 6, God struck Uzzah down. What connects God being our Father, and yet we can fully and boldly say, God, you are holy. His holiness struck Uzzah down. It's the cross of Christ that connects these two things. The cross of Christ is what allows us to call God Father and also to call God holy. And to even delight in the fact that God is holiness. Jesus in the Gospels always addresses God as Father. There's, not one, there's only one single time that he doesn't address God as Father. He always says, Father. Father, when he goes to him in prayer, when he's talking to him, he always refers to him as Father. There's only one time that he doesn't call his God Father, and that's on the cross when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out, My God, so that we might cry out, My Father. In that moment, he's taking upon himself our sin, and God is treating him like Uzzah. He's striking him down by his holiness so that in turn, we who come to the cross, who trust in Christ, we are treated like sons and daughters of God. And we can cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because he has given us his holiness. And so before we even get into beyond, you know, what does this prayer mean? Don't skip over that space 
that's between those two words, that he's our father, and yet we can strongly, boldly cry out, God, make your name holy. Don't skip over that. And so our our second thematic thread, also found in verse 2, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It says, I said this, uh, in prayer, we are to cry out for God's name to be sanctified or hallowed and for his kingdom to come, namely that the people of God would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps we haven't really dwelled on what it means to be hallowed, but again, I kind of alluded to it. It's the Greek verb for holiness. We're, we're, we're asking God to make his name Holy And everywhere, every line in this prayer is, in Greek, it's in the imperative mood. What that simply means, it's a mood of urgency. It's a mood of command. And so when you read the first couple of lines of the prayer, it's, Father, your name must be sanctified. Your kingdom must come. We must have daily bread. You must give us daily bread. You must forgive us our sins. All the lines are in that fashion except for the very last line, and we'll talk about that later. Um, So we have this imperative mood. It's not that we're just coming to him and we're asking him, please, please, Lord, um, if you would, make your name hallowed. Sanctify your name. We're, We're passionately coming and we're saying, God, make your name hallowed among the peoples. Sanctify your name. Lift it up, high and lift it up above all things. What does it mean, though? For God to make his name holy, is he not already completely holy? What, is he adding to his holiness? Is he getting more holy? I mean, that's not what is in the mind of Luke. Uh, a couple commentators that I read, um, this is a really good commentary. It's the New Testament use of the Old Testament. So anytime the Old Testament's used in the New Testament, this commentary seeks to like give some background as to what are the New Testament writers using this Old Testament text. And these two guys, uh, David Paul and Eckhart Schnabel, awesome name. Uh, in Ezekiel 36, they say, uh, they say of this, this text in Matthew, uh, sorry, Luke 11, verse 2, that Ezekiel 36 provides a clear conceptual background for understanding this prayer. In Ezekiel 36, we find the Greek, like if you look at the, the Greek version of it, we find the same phrases of God, sanctify your name. It's been profaned among the nations. And so there's this problem. Ezekiel, um, the, the people of God have been pulled out of the promised land because of their sinfulness, because of their idolatry. And God has given them over to Babylon. And they've been spread out all across the Babylonian empire. And even in their exile, they are still profaning God's name by not obeying him. They're worshiping other idols. And Ezekiel is coming to this problem and he's saying, God's name is being profaned because his people aren't living up to his name. And right, and that... That should sound relatively familiar. That shouldn't be hard for us to connect with, even though this is way back then, right? Even today, what is one of the, the biggest, you know, I would argue, the biggest turn away from Christianity is not Jesus. When people see the Savior of Christianity, they, they, they're not necessarily turned away from that. But normally, it's when they look at someone who claims to have come into Christ, who claims to have seen the holiness of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ, and then they walk hypocritically. They walk in a way in which it doesn't say to the person who's looking, I desire God above all else. And people tend to turn away in, in those um, terms. And so let me give a, a little story that I had heard a, a very long time ago. I did a little more research. Apparently, it's a pretty famous story in England. Uh, so if anyone is from England and you've heard this story, please tell me if I'm right, if it's a famous story or not. Uh, this is a convict. Um, his name's Charles Peace. He was a robber and eventually a murderer. And he escaped the law for a good amount of time. Eventually they caught him and he was sentenced to be hanged, obviously, until death. And he kind of had a a chaplain came to him in kind of a last rites uh, way. He's, you know, here's your last rites, you're about to die. And um, the chaplain's kind of mumbling over some scriptures about hell. And he's mumbling over some scriptures about how Christ can forgive your sins. So he's, he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And apparently the convict starts... Um, interacting with the chaplain. And so Charles, the convict, says, do you believe what you're reading? And the chaplain replied, well, yeah, I guess I do. Charles responded, uh, in my mind, with a hauntingly convicting reply. 
I've been convicted by the convict. And I would ask you all to search your hearts and also maybe receive this from the convict. He says this, Sir, if I believe what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it. If need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. We profane God's name and the truth of his word when we live in a way in which God doesn't appear altogether lovely and desirous. When we can't honestly say, I would crawl on glass if it meant God's name would be hallowed among the peoples. And so you have to cling to the cross of Christ, right? You have to return to that first thread when you find yourself falling short, right? Because Christ provides his own holiness in your stead. And it's the cross of Christ that provides us the motivation for crawling on glass. So Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel points out this problem. Charles Peace pointed out the same problem. But he gives the solution in Ezekiel 36 as well. This is verses 25 through 27. It says this, and this is Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, speaking. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on, your, on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This unlocks, for me, the whole purpose of verse 2 in Luke 11. When we say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your name must be sanctified. When we say, your kingdom must come. What we're truly saying, what we're truly crying out for, is that God would take his spirit and put it within us. And he would cause us to walk in what he's commanded us to do. Or uh, Augustine had like a, a kind of famous expression, right? Command us whatever you want, Lord. Give us what you command. That's what we're saying here. God has commanded us whatever he wants. And without his spirit, we will not obey what he has commanded. And so it's a cry for God's spirit. So this is at the heart of Jesus' prayer. It's at the heart of the Lord's prayer. And uh, we can even lump in that line, your kingdom come. If you continue reading in Ezekiel, the very next chapter, you come to the valley of dry bones, pretty famous passage. There's these dead, dry bones all over. And God says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel essentially answers back and says, Lord, only you know. And then God commands him, speak to the bones. And as he starts speaking the word of God to the bones, they rattle together. Flesh comes on, muscle comes on. And then God says, speak Breathe your spirit into it. He says, speak the winds to them. Speak the spirit to them. And then it says the spirit comes in and then they stand an exceedingly large army. And then it ends that uh, valley of dry bones reflecting back on Ezekiel 36 saying this. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. You keep going on in Ezekiel 37. The very end of it, it says this. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. David's been dead for years upon years upon years. And so he's not talking about King David, right? We, we started in first Kings. David's about to die. David's been long and dead since this passage. And so he's talking about another David. He's talking about the son of David. He's talking about the good shepherd, Christ, the King. And so when we cry out, Lord, sanctify your name. Bring your kingdom. May your kingdom come. We're saying, Lord, give us your spirit and let King Jesus even now reign on earth. That's what we're crying here. And we find that in Ezekiel 36. So we're, we're looking at the connection between Father and holiness. We're crying out for God to give us his spirit so that we don't profane his name. And so that the nations see the people of God walking in his ways. And they're attracted to God because of that. Our third um, thematic thread is this. Uh, this is C. C. In prayer, we are to cry out to God for the bread of salvation, the heavenly bread. Verse 3. Verse 3 says this. Give us each day our daily bread. Uh, the word that you might not even know this. Like I, I didn't know this until I was studying it. But 
the word daily bread is a highly contentious, um, argued about phrase because the word daily before bread only shows up in the New Testament in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and in the Lord's Prayer in Luke. We have no other examples of it anywhere else in the New Testament. And so it's hard to like, well, how does, you know, how does this person use it? How does this person use it? We only know that Jesus taught it in his prayer. And, and so, you know, scholars kind of argue about what, what exactly does it mean? Does it mean daily? Does it mean something else? And there's kind of two interpretations that rise to the top. And I want to give both of them to you. The first one is they translate it as daily. So that one's easy enough, right? Give us this day our daily bread. And uh, the commentators, they hearken back to Exodus 16.4 as the heart. And it says this in Exodus 16.4. Behold, again, Yahweh, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go and gather a day's portion every day. And so these commentators, they say that that's what Jesus is hearkening back to. It's, it's like in the Exodus when they're, they're wandering around in the wilderness. And every single day, God drops manna for them to be provided for the strength to continue to obey God for that day. And they got a day's portion each and every single day. The second one, is it, it comes from the early church. A guy named Jerome. Uh, he, he's most famous for it. He's the one that uh, translated the Bible into Latin. So the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible is uh, because of Jerome. And so Jerome, uh, he made reference to a gospel that was written in Hebrew. We have no evidence of this gospel. We don't have any copies of it. But a lot of the early church fathers would quote from it. And they would just directly quote the Hebrew. And in this gospel, the Lord's Prayer shows up. And so Jerome in some of his texts would quote the Lord's Prayer. And so when he's quoting this passage, give us this day, this daily bread, he gave the Hebrew word that means tomorrow. And so it would read something like this. Give us today the bread of tomorrow. And so it kind of gives it more of an end times eschatological edge. Like, Lord, we're asking for the heavenly bread. It's in the future. We know Christ hasn't fully culminated the kingdom yet, but we're asking even now for some of that heavenly bread, right? So that, that's the, the route that the early church uh, kind of took. But the good news is, is I, I honestly think no matter which way you go, whether you say daily or tomorrow, it equates to the same thing. Because we know, let's say we say daily, we know that the man of heaven wasn't the true heavenly bread, in John 6, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Earlier on before that statement in the same chapter, he says, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Paul also kind of alludes to the same manna in the wilderness and makes a reference to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, 3-4, he says, Even in Moses' day... All ate from the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. And again, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 3-4. So, um, the early church said bread of tomorrow. But what they meant is they used words like bread of salvation, bread of life, heavenly manna. New scholars say it's the, you know, it's the daily bread referring to the manna. Either way, it equates to that in this cry, we are not merely asking for energy or food to be provided, our, our, you know, our needs. That's encapsulated in this verse. But at its heart, what we're really saying is, Lord, let us participate even now. Let us have a taste of Christ even now. Fill us up with Christ. Give us the bread of salvation. Give us the bread of life. The bread which when we eat it, we shall never hunger again. That's what's at the heart of this cry. And so kind of want to, I'll give kind of a practical example. So what does this mean? How do you interweave this in your prayer? Um, one of the, so one of the things I do in my high school classes that I get to teach, I, I hand out index cards and I ask each student to write their name in a prayer request on the back that I can be praying throughout the year for them. And one of my high school students, he wrote out, uh, this was his prayer request. He said, to know what God has for me and for him to give me the exact strength to do it. That's exactly what this prayer is. Lord, give us daily bread. We're saying, God, we know what's at your heart. We know your will. Your name must be sanctified among the earth. Your kingdom must come. Give us the exact strength to do it. And the exact strength is only found in your daily portion of Christ. Finding Christ daily. Going to him daily in faith and saying, Christ, give me even now 
your body and your blood. And so that's our third uh, one, that we cry out daily for the bread of salvation, the heavenly bread, namely Christ Jesus. So our fourth uh, theme, uh, letter D. In prayer, we are to cry out for forgiveness from God while not being hypocritical by not forgiving others who are indebted to us. Verse 4 says this. Forgive us our sins. And again, it's the must language. You must forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And so all these, um, all these lines so far have had kind of a, they've had a, a horizontal implication, meaning they imply things that we ought to do to our neighbors, but they haven't directly talked about our neighbors. This one adds that last clause, right? And it says, as we ourselves have forgiven those around us who are indebted to us. And so there's a, there's a more strict, this is what you ought to do. This applies directly to those who are beside you, to your left, right, in front of you, and behind you. Um, and so it also can kind of come across, I don't know if you, you, you thought this, but it can kind of come across as like, our forgiveness from God is dependent upon our forgiveness of others. It, it comes across as that. And I, you know, I tried to get around that, you know, oh, that's not true, that can't be, that's, that sounds like legalism, but... I read Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, and literally right at the end of the prayer, uh, in verses 14 through 15, Jesus gives a little bit of a, a, a color commentary on this text. And he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, our Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's pretty straightforward and direct. And so how, how exactly are we to understand this? I'm going to kind of go to two different stories in the life of Jesus. Uh, one's from Matthew 18, and then the other one is going to be in our text or from Luke a little bit early on. In Matthew 18, he tells the story of the, forget, the unforgiving servant. Uh, there's this king and this servant, and this servant owes this king about 20 years worth of wage. That's a lot. Um, unless you're a teacher, then it's not that much. But <laughs> sorry, I can say that. I'm a teacher. Uh, so he owes him 20 years of wage. Um, and Jesus then, or sorry, the, the king in this story forgives him. He says, you know what? I forgive you your debt. The, then, the servant then goes out, and there's a guy lower on the totem pole that owes the servant one day's wage. Okay, 20 years, one day. And this guy says, I'm not forgiving you. He throws him in jail until he can pay off his wage, right? And so the king catches wind of this. And, of course, he demands the servant to come back before him, the one that he forgave, 20 years of salary. And he's like, I heard that you didn't forgive this guy. What's going on here? He didn't forgive him. And what does the king do with him? He throws him in prison until he can pay off the 20 years salary. He, he withdraws, right, his forgiveness from him. So, so that, that one kind of encapsulates this. But there's another story in Luke 7 also dealing with money. Um, there's a certain money lender who forgives two debts. One of the debt was uh, 500 denarii, so a little bit bigger. Than, and then the other debt was 50 denarii, so 500 verse 50. And Jesus is sitting at a table of a Pharisee who invited him. And this woman comes in, and she's like wiping his feet with her hair. She's crying on his feet. And the Pharisee's like, if you knew this woman sinned, you wouldn't let, if you knew who this woman was, you wouldn't let her touch you. And Jesus rebukes him with this story. And he says, you know, tell me this. Which one of those guys who are forgiven loves the money lender the most? And the Pharisee, obviously, he, he answers like, well, of course, the guy who was forgiven more. And then Jesus, you know, hook, sinker, got him. Uh, he gives this. He says this to him. Her sins, referring to the lady at his feet, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. When we see the great depravity, the sinfulness of our own hearts, when we see the great debt that we owe to God, and then we perceive in the cross of Christ that that debt has been freely forgiven, when we truly have that, we don't go back and then demand a day's wage be paid to us. We freely forgive as we've been freely forgiven. When we see the eternity-wide value of the forgiveness provided for us in Christ Jesus, the temporal things that people have done to us seem small and even insignificant, even when they're, they feel large and perhaps way more significant. 
another way of saying it uh, is uh, that we are not, uh, this is James Edward, commentator of Luke. He says this, believers are not simply objects of forgiveness. They are also conduits of forgiveness. They extend to others what God and grace has freely extended uh, to them. And I, I want to take a, a quick side note. Um, maybe even now you're struggling to forgive someone in your heart. Maybe there's someone in your heart that's done something to you that you perceive is way greater than just merely like an insult or they're ignoring your presence or maybe they're talking about their passions and thus not talking about your passions or whatever, whatever it might be. There, you know, there's little slights that can hurt our feelings too. Um, but maybe you have something that's way bigger than that. Um, or maybe it's something that someone has sinned against you in a way that's kind of perpetual. Uh, you were deprived of a, a good parent. You were deprived of a safe home. Or, or maybe you had a, a good friendship that ended in, in treachery and a brokenness in that friendship. Maybe, maybe there's, there's great suffering, right? Um, and great unforgiveness. I, I am not belittling um, what you're going through. But I am asking you to, I'm pleading with you, to look at Christ. To look at this, the payment that he has paid. And to allow his forgiveness to seep into your heart and by the spirit of God, extend it to others. Even now, forgive others. Uh, Because the text is is very clear. If we're not conduits of forgiveness, we haven't received forgiveness. And so even now, uh, if you're struggling in forgiveness, again, I, I call you back to that first thematic thread, Christ and him crucified. He has provided forgiveness for you. He has provided his holiness for you. He has provided his righteousness for you. And he'll give you the strength, the exact strength you need to forgive those uh, in your heart. So our our last thread is the only one that's not with certainty. It's letter E. It comes from, and lead us not into temptation. In prayer, we are to request that we might not be led into trials and testing or temptation of our faith. Um, I've kind of alluded to. Uh, the, the definition for temptation here in the Greek dictionary is temptation, trials, testing. Those are kind of the three main things. And really, they equate to the same thing. And I'll, I'll get to that. But I want to throw James 1.13 out because this is one that commonly comes to the, you know, when we start thinking about what, can God lead us into temptation? James 1.13 is normally thrown out. So it says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But I want to also point out here that what we're not asking God is, don't tempt us. We're actually saying, God, don't lead us into temptation. I know that sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but we're going to look at Luke and how he uses temptation. You'll kind of see what I mean here. God can and does and has led his people into temptation. Right? So that's, what, that's what's at stake here. And in this text, it's no longer in the imperative mood. It's no longer a command or an urgency or a demand. It's actually in the subjunctive mood, which just means it's not certain. You add a may instead of a must. It's, Lord, may you please not lead us into temptation. It's not, Lord, you must not lead us into temptation. So there's a little more uncertainty here. And so let's, let's survey Luke for this word tempt, because it comes up and it's kind of helpful uh, to see how Luke, what he means by it. It comes up in the parable of the sower uh, in terms of the rocky soil, right? The, the seeds are planted, they grow up, but the roots are choked out by the rocky soil and eventually they fall away. This is Luke eight thirteen. It says this, they believe for a while, but in the time of testing or temptation, they fall away. It shows up in Jesus uh, at the end when the the disciples are kind of bickering back and forth and they're saying, who's the greatest? And Jesus kind of, at the end of it, he puts them in their place, but then he also gives this beautiful promise in uh, Luke 22, 28 through 29. It says this, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials or temptation or testings. And I covenant or assign to you as my father has assigned to me a kingdom. It shows up again in the very next prayer in the Gospel of Luke. So in Luke 11, you have the Lord's Prayer. The very next prayer that you see is Gethsemane. That's the very next Lord's Prayer. 
And it shows up in that prayer as a bookend. Both the first and the last statement of that prayer read like this. Pray, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And what's in the middle of that prayer is Jesus almost fighting, right, with his father. Lord, take this cup away from me. But at the end, he says, not my will, your will be done. And so there's an uncertainty here, right? He, Jesus is saying like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go through this, but not my will, your will be done. And that's kind of at the heart of what we have in this prayer. Uh, it's used again, and this is the one that really just sealed the deal for me to try to understand the Lord's Prayer. Jesus has his baptism The dove descends upon him, right? The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon him. It rests in him. And in Luke 4, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. A couple things to point out here. It's very clear. He's full. He's full of the Spirit. It also says it's the Spirit that led him into the wilderness, and then he's tempted for 40 days by Satan himself. And so here's an actual example of where Jesus was literally led by God's spirit into a time of temptation. But we also know he had the strength then to rebuke Satan, right? And so, you know, there's a double-edged uh, promise there. But so we should take this line essentially as God is telling us that we ought to heartily cry out to him, to not lead us. He, does, he wants us to not want to go. We shouldn't be like, God, send all the temptations my way so I can rebuke them and glorify your name. That's not what's at the heart here. And rather, Christians, people who follow Jesus ought to be marked off by saying, God, lead me not into temptation. But while we say that line, we also have Jesus's line in our hearts. Not my will, your will be done. Right? And so we've been filled with the Holy Spirit Jesus has given us of his flesh and his blood. He has forgiven us our sins. He's made us a conduit to forgive others. And we have the spirit, remember? That's the start, right? And now we're asking him not to lead us into temptation. But even if he does, Lord, not our will, your will. So keep in mind, we have the Holy Spirit. And so if we do go through trials, if we do go through testings, if we do go through temptations, we have the Holy Spirit. God is with us. Um, Jesus rebuked Satan. He didn't fall to his temptations. Peter, right? He, he fell to his temptations. He denied Christ three times, but Jesus restored him, right? Because he's his people, and that's what Christ does. He restores us. So whether we are successful in our temptations or we are f- failing in our temptations, we can trust that our Father will send us his Spirit and will restore us. So in summary, we're looking at Christ and him crucified to connect God's fatherhood and holiness. We're looking at, we're asking God, we're begging God to send his Holy Spirit and King Jesus even now on earth. We're, we're asking God to forgive us our sins and to make us conduits of forgiveness to those around us. And we're asking, we're begging God to not lead us into trials, testings, and temptations. Those are the threads that, that's the model that Jesus has provided for his disciples to pray. And so I would urge you all in your prayers Weave those things in and throughout um, your prayers. Make those things um, part of your prayer. So now we're kind of turning toward, we know what the model and the marker of prayer is. Now we're turning to the motivations. What's the motivation that I have to ask God to respond to me? And what's the motivation that God has to answer my uh, requests? And we'll find in these two stories that Jesus, these motivational stories, that Jesus is going to give two different motives. And the motive that God has for answering your prayer is the same motive that we have for asking prayer. It's the same motivation at the root of it. And so let's turn to the first story. And this is point two. Our first motivation is this. God answers our prayers because the honor of his name is at stake. Therefore, we pray Because the honor of his name is also at stake. This first uh, story, Jesus tells, uh, it's a hypothetical, it's a, if this happened, right? Hypothetical story that, you know, this guy, you know, this, uh, he receives an out of the blue guest way late at night. 
food has already been dealt with. He doesn't have food for this guest. And so he goes to his sleepy neighbor around midnight and he knocks and he asks his sleepy neighbor for uh, bread to provide for his guest. The sleepy neighbor's kids and, and, and his wife They've gone to sleep, and I don't know, I mean, like, if you've ever been around a place in which kids had just finally gone to sleep, you know, it's a big no-no to wake them up. Uh, That's just in our culture, but, you know, in this culture, so everyone's already asleep. And then Jesus says the sleepy neighbor's not going to get up because of his friendship with the man, but rather he'll get up due to his impudence, which I'm going to translate as shamelessness. The reason I do that is kind of like the word daily. This is the only time that this word shows up in all the New Testament. We have no examples of how it's used. And so uh, some of the commentators and scholars that I read, uh, they, they looked into the Greek Old Testament, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And then they looked in some of the early, you know, Judaistic first century literature and some of the Greek and Roman literature from around the time. And in this context... Most of the time it's negative and it means the idea of saving face. And so it's this idea of honor and shame. It's this idea of shamelessness that's at the heart. Now, you'll notice if you're reading the ESV Bible, there's a footnote. And at the bottom, it says something about persistence. It, the word, it, it doesn't mean persistence. But what they did is they, they, there's another parable in Luke 18, the persistent widow. And it sounds a bit similar to that parable. And so some scholars have taken that route and said, well, Jesus is just teaching the same thing here. But I want to be clear, there's no element of persistence in this text. It's just the idea of a neighbor getting up at midnight and going and knocking on his other neighbor's house. He's not like continually ringing the doorbell until the guy gets up. He's asking him at midnight. So let me give... Uh, I found this to be really helpful. There's a couple of cultural cues um, from this time period that I think will help us. First, honor is extremely important, and it's directly tied to hospitality. So a way of saying that is if you are not able to be hospitable to your guest, you're bringing shame to your guest, you're bringing shame to your own family, and you're potentially bringing shame to your neighbors because he's staying in the same village, right? And so... The first thing is honor is extremely important and it's tied to hospitality. The second thing is, uh, you know, this idea of honor, shame, not wanting to bring shame to his guest is what drives the first neighbor to go to his sleepy neighbor at midnight in the first place. He's not going out because he, you know, he's the local Taco Bell and he's also not going out because he's good friends. He's going out because it's the honor of his guest, which is at stake. And that's what drives him to go knock on the door. And third, the sleepy neighbor, and likely the whole village here, is not rich. He has a one-bedroom house, likely. And that's why it makes the mention that his kids and wives are all sleeping. They're all in the same room. And so they're all kind of on the same mat. And so when it says, like, he's knocking and saying, hey, give us bread, you've got to imagine a guy laying there with all, you know, kind of the whole family, right, in the same room. And him to get up. And to kind of tiptoe around his kids and then unlock the door and get bread and all this, he's surely going to wake his family up. And so the sleepy neighbor is likely not rich. Um, so what's at heart at this is honor and shame is kind of my point with these three things. Uh, give a modern day example. Uh, I used to be a, a resident assistant at a house in Ben Lippin High School, Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, they had a, a Chinese student exchange program. Uh, So these high school students will come over from China. I mean, they don't know English, and they're living in this house. This kind of it's like a house divided in half. And I'm I'm living with them, and I'm making sure you know they're getting school on time, and I'm making sure you know that they're not like lighting the house on fire or whatever it is. And I'm helping them out with homework occasionally. So one time there's you know there's trash and it's full, and I'm like, hey guys, can someone take out the trash? And they all kind of roll their eyes. They're probably playing video games. Uh, which is fine. Uh, so they're rolling their eyes at me. like, And so finally I go over and I go to take out the trash. And immediately four of these guys jump up and they go, no, 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 no. And then they run over, they take out the trash. And I was like, what, what on earth just happened? And I asked one of them, I asked one of my friends, his, name, his English name is uh, Percy. And he was like, yeah, so you're kind of seen as a leader or uh, our elder almost. And if we would have allowed you to do the demeaning thing of taking out trash in our presence, it would have brought dishonor to you. But more importantly, it would have brought dishonor to us because we allowed our leader to do something that's below him. Now, I, I realize that 
we're, we're commanded by Christ to serve. So I'm not saying like, don't take out the trash, demand your children take out the trash. That's not what I'm saying here. But I am saying in that culture, it would have been a dishonoring thing. And they were motivated to take out the trash because my honor was at stake and there was honor, their honor was at stake. That's the same thing that's going on in this text before us. So here's the question. Whose honor are we talking about? If you look at um, the passage, when it talks about impudence, it just says his impudence. Because, not because of friendship, but because his impudence, he'll get up, give the loaves or whatever. And so commentators are kind of split on this. Is it talking about the original neighbor, you know, the OG neighbor who had the, the, the guest, and he's going out because of his impudence, because of his, he doesn't want to lose, his, lose face, he doesn't want to lose honor, he's going out? Or is it talking about the dude who's sleeping because of his not wanting to lose shame and honor. He gets up out of bed and he gives the loaves. It's unclear in the text. And, and my personal view here is Luke leaves it ambiguous because it rightfully applies to both of the neighbors. It applies to the neighbor and it applies to the sleepy neighbor. And so the reading here is uh, both are being motivated by honor. So let, let me read this. In this context, the parable serves the purpose to give us the motivation by which we should pray and also one of the motivations by which God gets up and answers our prayers. He gets up because the honor of his name is at stake. Go back to Ezekiel 36. When we live lives that profane his name, it's his name that's being profaned. And so when we cry out, God, give us your spirit, we're, we're saying, God, restore us back to obedience. Restore us back into your covenant. Let your name be sanctified among the nations. That's our motivation in prayer. We're saying, God, we don't want your name to be dragged through the mud through our sinfulness. We don't want your name to be dragged through the mud through our disobedience. God's got the same motivation. He's looking down. He's seeing his people. He doesn't want his name dragged through the mud. He doesn't want his people's name dragged through the mud. And so our motivation crying out for God that he might honor his name by giving his spirit is the same motivation that God himself takes when he answers our prayers. His honor, his, the sanctity of his name, the holiness of his name is at stake. And so our first motivation is the honor of God is at stake in prayer. We are motivated by God's name being lifted up. He's motivated by his name being lifted up. And by the way, there's no, there's no selfishness in that. There's not, a, there's not a sinful selfishness in God being motivated to lift his name up. Because I would ask you, go throughout the Bible and ask yourself, how does God go about lifting his name up? He takes a poor, wretched, broken community and he saves them. He redeems them. He fills them with his spirit. He restores them. He fixes them, and eventually he glorifies them. And that's how he restores his own honor, by, rest- by restoring us. So our second motivation, and this is our final one. Our God answers our prayers because he's our father. Therefore, we pray because we are his sons and his daughters. So Jesus tells another uh, story. This time it's, you know, it's about a father. It, it goes along the lines of, if his kid asks his father for a fish... Which father, I mean, who would give him a snake? Or if he asked for an egg, who would give him a scorpion? You know, it's kind of tapping into our natural view of fatherhood. And it's saying, like, if you saw a father giving a snake to his child when they asked for a Nintendo, you'd be freaked out. If you saw a father giving a scorpion to his child when they asked for a piece of bread or food, I mean, that would enrage us, I would hope. But I also want to preface this by... um, not all of our fathers gave us bread. Some of our fathers might have given us snakes and serpents. Um, Jesus is not talking about those fathers. And I know one of the, just talking with high school students, um, one of the greatest temptations is to take a poor example of a father and then to take that poor example and to shoot it back up to God the Father and make that our thought process of, well, if, if this is my earthly father, then my heavenly father must be 7,000 times as bad. Or it, it kind of has a corrupting nature. And I want to tell you that God has been Father from all eternity. Our meaning from fatherhood comes from God's fatherhood. Not, we, it, it didn't, we didn't come first. And so uh, what we're actually seeing in the lack, right? When fathers fail, when I fail my children, what we're actually seeing is you know, sin. 
We're seeing disobedience. It's not God causing those things. And so um, one of our, our temptations here. And so I just want to make this side note that if you didn't have the father who gave you good things, um, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying all fathers are good and naturally give good things. He's saying that society, generally speaking, when they see a father who um, terrorizes their children, we're enraged because we know it's not natural. We know it's not right. It's not in God's will. So God compares, and we're all nodding our heads. Yeah, of course, they're not going to give snakes. They're not going to give scorpions. We're nodding our heads along with Jesus. And then he gives kind of the big turn or the twist. And he says this, How much more would your Father, who is in heaven, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We ask from him in the Lord's Prayer. We seek him in the Lord's Prayer. We knock on his door with the Lord's Prayer. And he answers by giving his children the Holy Spirit. And so um, this is kind of a cliche statement that's always bothered me, but it's not that big of a deal because it's kind of true. Um, people talk about prayer. Um, does God, you know, he always answers your prayer. Sometimes it's no, right? We've heard that, right? We've heard sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's not what you want to hear. And there's a truth to that. But this text, and I don't want you to miss, miss this because this is probably the most important thing. God doesn't say yes or no in this text. He says, Holy Spirit. At the very end of the text, it doesn't say he gives you good gifts. It says he gives you the Holy Spirit. He provides the Holy Spirit for your situation. If it's a time of temptation, he provides the Holy Spirit for your situation. If it's a time of suffering or trials, he gives the Holy Spirit for that. If it's a time of lack of bread, he gives the Holy Spirit for that. So uh, read it that way. Um, So it is the Spirit of God who sanctifies the Father's name. It's the Spirit of God who brings the kingdom on earth. It's the Spirit of God who provides us the bread of salvation, Christ Jesus himself. It's the Spirit of God who assures us that we are forgiven by Christ and gives us the power then to forgive others who've committed sin against us. And it's also the Spirit of God who leads us, even if we are led into a time of temptation, though Jesus beckons us to pray against this. So here we find the primary means of motivations for praying God is primarily motivated because you're his children, and he gives good gifts, way greater gifts. He gives the Holy Spirit. So you can kind of see the Trinitarian nature all throughout the prayer, right? Jesus starts this thing off, and he talks about the Father, and it ends with the Holy Spirit. Um, So he gives you the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'll give a couple examples. I remember literally my van door was falling off of the van. Okay, think about it for a second. You come home. I came home from a long day or something. I can't remember. I was, it was a long day. And the van door is literally falling off of my van. And I'm like kicking trees. And I'm, I'm probably like punching trees. And I'm, I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm like frustrated. And I call my dad. And within an hour, he's there. We fix the van door. I'm trying to do taxes. Um, and I don't know how to do taxes. But my mom's like the businesswoman of the world. So I call my mom an hour. She's there. She helps me do taxes. Maybe you've had a friend that in the middle of the night you had struggle or whatever it is, you, you, your van door's falling off or whatever it might be, and you're able to call that friend, and because they're such a great friend to you, they're, they're practically your brother or your sister, or maybe they're a little older than you, and they actually act unto you like a father ought to act, and they come immediately and they rush to your aid. Um, another example, and I'll, I'll never forget this one. I sat down um, with one of my high school students, and he was telling me, he grew up in a, a divorced home, basically didn't have his dad in the home. And he sat down at lunch and he started naming off, he listed off by name, different men in his life that had fi- like filled different voids that a father ought to have been there to do. He started listing off people. This guy, he taught me how to tie a tie. This guy, he had someone helping me with schoolwork. This guy, he talked about sports with me. This guy, he prayed with me. This guy, he shared the word of God with me. And he just named off these men. We end how we began the Lord's prayer. We started with the word father and we end with the concept of father. If our fathers and mothers and friends who act in times as father and mother or brother and sister can give us good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit? And let's conclude with this. The last five words is the conclusion of this text. 
to those who ask him. It's conditional. He doesn't give the Holy Spirit to those who don't ask him. I, I want you to feel that. I mean, I, I am a 17, 25-point Calvinist, but I, I can tell you right now that I honestly, truly believe that God's Word teaches that if you do not pray to him, if you do not ask for him to give you the Holy Spirit, he will not give you the Holy Spirit. And so my challenge is, is as you're looking at these thematic threads, that's the application, right? Weave these things into your prayer life and, and make these things mark off your prayer life. But don't miss the very most obvious application from this text. You must make yourself one of those who ask him. You must make it the highest priority in your life to come to Christ daily, beckoning the Father to give you the Holy Spirit. Because... Best case scenario, you're going through life without trouble whatsoever, but you're doing it all in your own power. That's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, you're running into every little trial, every little temptation, every, every little suffering. Every, you're hitting every branch on the way down of life. But without the Holy Spirit, both of those situations equate to the same thing. They both equate to the same thing. If we're doing it in our strength, it won't last into eternity. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, it won't last into eternity. So this is my prayer for you all, that daily you would carve out, even if it means carving into your own flesh, it might feel that way, that you would carve out a time that you set apart to go before the Father in heaven and ask him for his Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Father... You are a good father. I ask that you would mold and shape me and and remedy church. And those who go by your name, Lord, that you would make us those who ask you. That you would make us those who pray daily and nightly. Because prayer is one of the best ways that we demonstrate that, Lord, we are weak, we are needy, and only you can bring a solution. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that your honor will be restored among the nations and that we will demonstrate that we are your children as we walk the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.